Hello, and thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. This is Episode 27, The Secession Crisis. The day after the election of 1860, Republicans rode a wave of rejoicing. But within three months, that joy turned to ash. The equally potent wave of secession would, with breathtaking swiftness, cleave the Union in two. This came as something of a shock to Republicans. It came nearly as an equal shock to Southerners, many of whom stumbled into secession instead of carefully planning it. This may be seen as a strange contrast to the Revolution of 1776, in which the colonies planned and united together first, attempting round after round of diplomacy and resorting to military action afterward. The reason for this lay in the fact that the most aggressive radicals had a convenient excuse the presumed radicalism of the North. The Republicans, as we've seen, became pretty much anathema to the Deep South from the moment they were founded. Republicans may have had their own political balancing act on the slavery question, but by this point the Deep South's leadership appeared to believe, and sometimes openly declared, that anything short of full-throated assent on the slavery question was a deliberate insult to their pride, or even an open declaration of genocidal war. We previously discussed in part the source of those views, but the most important factor here is that the consequences were terrible. If you believe crazy things, you may do crazy things. There are two ways of looking at this. In one sense, it was a noxious, clouded, and selfish worldview that refused any compromise or even the possibility of compromise and created the very opposition it condemned. All of this is true. But the other way of viewing it is that the Southern elite, especially in the Deep South, very clearly saw that their way of life was loathed by most of the world, and even most of their countrymen. Secession, far from a purely emotive act, sprung at least as much from cold calculation. In this way, secession became merely the next logical step, whether motivated either by self-absorbed hatred or careful judgment, because slavery might not survive without it. To analyze the political situation as slaveholders saw it, we should understand that Republicans would soon control the patronage, a topic worthy of its own episode, and with it considerable leverage on politics. Republicans now held the presidency and would arrive with enough muscle in Congress to strongly pressure, though not completely dictate, the national political agenda. Democrats held a razor-thin margin in the Senate. But given the estrangement of Southern and Northern Democrats, and the presence of a couple know-nothings in the mix, Republicans would very likely push through some of their platform. At the bare minimum, it was expected that Kansas would come in as a free state. The law to do this, in fact, duly passed in January of 1861 with some Southern congressmen absent. Hence, even the farce of slavery would end there. Possibly, the gates to the remaining West would fly open to free settlement as well. And even if the Republicans lost the following presidential election in 1864, they would still have four years in which to solidify their political base. By the time the South would even have a chance to claw back control, they might no longer have the opportunity or the method to turn back the clock. New states, probably all free, might join the Union. The Senate and Electoral College could tilt decisively away from the South in slavery more than it already had. Even when and if Southern interests held sway, the administrative and legal apparatus of the nation would view slavery as less important and less significant. 
Here we see the importance to planters of the fugitive slave laws. Despite the trivial injury to slavery itself, the very possibility of escape weakened slavery, and that could not be permitted anywhere. Likewise, Southerners grew increasingly paranoid that any opposition to the expansion of slavery heralded fundamental opposition to any slavery. And again, that fear created the very opposition it stood against. In addition, Southerners foresaw that Republicans would find people to build a political machine in the border states, and quite possibly in the Upper South as well. Although few would or could admit it at the time, many slave owners knew perfectly well that given a choice, a great many other proud Southern men might be more than happy to choose alternatives to plantation and cotton economy. Whole regions of the South had few slaves and no particular desire for more, including almost all the South bordering the Appalachians. In 1860, Republicans had few strong political prospects there, but some did exist and they knew it. Moreover, all that could change given four years to work on the problem. In 1860, yes, Republicans couldn't even get on the ballot anywhere in the South. But in another election, even the Upper South could be in play for them. However, pro-slavery Southerners erred badly in their understanding of Lincoln or the Northern States. Incapable, perhaps, of understanding the differences between a fanatic and a statesman, or deliberately obfuscating it, they delved into outright fantasies. They imagined that Lincoln would send abolition hordes to ruin the South and spark resistance among slaves. Ironically, if Lincoln is criticized today, it is predominantly for his too conservative view of the matter and his stated intention to permit and allow slavery without interference in the states where it was legal. In reality, Lincoln understood that abolition was far beyond what he had the power to accomplish. Yet newspapers friendly to Buchanan and the Southern interests had spent the last election freely inventing stories of arson and poisoning anyway, so a little more nonsense hardly mattered. And with each increasingly insane story, the real situation began to resemble the uh, simplified version that slaveholders like to tell themselves everyone else was out to get them. All of their real weaknesses being acknowledged, the South's elite did not in reality face a weak political situation, at least not as weak as it first appeared. Many Republicans shied away from the radical abolitionist program. The party's strength flowed from anti-slavery ideology, yes, but the exact form that took varied considerably across regions, classes, and ethnic groups. Free soil politics held much more popular sway than abolition, and the Constitution made it nigh impossible for the relatively weak federal government to interfere with slavery in the states. At worst, slave owners faced the possibility of a few more slave escapes, but these would mostly affect the border states and even then were relatively few. And although the South politically fought a very bitter war for access to the West, plantation owners themselves showed very little enthusiasm for actually going there even less for sending their slaves into that territory. Many of the fundamental challenges were geographical or based in climate or a lack of infrastructure, which might require decades to resolve. Although it's definitely true that the American West is much more than a mere desert, large portions of it were not especially suitable for plantations. There were fewer rivers suitable for the cotton trade, and though much of the land does support agriculture then and now, it won't support cotton, or the other market-intensive crops that were suitable and convenient for slaveholding. And at the same time, 
We should also understood that the southern politicians held a multitude of options to delay or bargain if they chose to exercise them. Stephen Douglas went to considerable pains to argue this very point in his last Greatest Hour when he toured the South and tried to bring the arguments back to sanity. His efforts failed. So, because of all this, we should see that the Southern elite actively chose the path of radicalism. It was not forced upon them by circumstance. They had options, and chose the one they wanted at the moment when the fever pitch of public fear, anger, and tension hit its peak. Fearing one revolution, and someday we will discuss the coming economic changes that would make that revolution unstoppable, they fanned the flames of a rebellion against the future itself. On December 20th, less than a month after the election of 1860, the legislature of South Carolina took the fateful step. At a convention they called in order to discuss secession, on that date mentioned, they quickly and unanimously passed a so-called declaration. This was nullification in earnest, announcing their separation from the United States. But they were past caring about so trivial a detail. In one sense, this was only the culmination of the paranoia that gripped many Southern leaders, but especially local slaveholding elites. Following the news of John Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry, Governor Gist of South Carolina for one bombastically breathed treason. He sent a message to Virginia's Governor Weiss, offering South Carolina's aid in the form of militiamen to suppress the slave rebellion. That these were not to occupy Harper's Ferry, however, but rather to march on Washington in a plan to defeat the expected horde of abolitionists and freed slaves. Of course, there was no horde and South Carolina's brinksmanship ended there. But just did not change his radical stripes, and a year later, he was urging his state out of the Union. We should also take a moment to discuss the motivations of South Carolina and eventually the other seceding states at this time. They themselves made it clear that slavery, not states' rights, was their motivation. Now, this does not mean that states' rights as a legal concept, or nullification as that matter, was irrelevant. But instead, the writers and speakers after the Civil War deliberately muddied the water by confusing the two. Nullification doctrine, or states' rights, had been defeated nationally but never lost their currency in South Carolina. This idea held that the states were free and independent, and could ignore the national law if they really wished to do so. There is more to it than that, but that is the rough outline. Now, they held that the states were, in effect, nations unto themselves and only delegated some rights to the central government. They never lost their separate status, even after signing the Constitution. Now, as an aside, constitutional scholars outside of South Carolina, even at the time, never really agreed to this principle. It doesn't really work as a legal measure, and at a basic level, it's just non-functional. Also, the Constitution was designed specifically to address the weakness of the Articles of Confederation. Now, the Articles were indeed set up around the theory of state sovereignty, again, if we're simplifying. But here's why that is important. States' rights was never the reason to go through with secession in 1860. It was the legal justification for the action, not the motivation. In fact, the obvious point is that South Carolina and the other new Confederate states became utterly enraged when northern states, on a much firmer legal basis, defied the Fugitive Slave Act. In their Declaration of Secession, they specifically cite that very point. Indeed, 
all their complaints centered directly around slavery, and entirely so. They had no other cause to complain. In discussing Abraham Lincoln, they vociferously declare that he was hostile to slavery. Indeed, their arguments such as they were look very weak historically, mostly demanding that Republicans uh, stop opposing slavery. Of course, the end of slavery itself was good American doctrine and political theory since even the days of the Founders, even though we know that those worthies sometimes failed to live up to that idea. Further, the South Carolina secessionists couldn't even plausibly claim here that Republicans were a revolutionary menace at that moment, so they resorted to saying that Republicans would imminently make war on slavery the moment they gained power, even though they hadn't actually done anything. Implicit again, in all of this is a reduction of Southern identity not to its people, or even to its free white population, but to slaveholders and the institution of slavery. That is what mattered here. The plantations, the elite, the moonlight and magnolias. In short, their version of the Declaration of Independence was very much a document by the slave drivers, of the slave drivers, and for the slave drivers. The truth is, of course, that all nations fail to live up to their noblest sentiments. The Confederacy avoided that fault by simply not having any. Unfortunately, and unlike the nullification crisis in 1832 or 33, South Carolina this time did not act alone. Her secession assembly created a model for other states to follow, and South Carolina actively invited them to follow. Several southern states heeded this call. Within several weeks, therefore, more states joined the nascent Confederacy. Mississippi acted first on January 9th. By February 1st, 1861, all of the Deep South had broadly agreed to a vague Confederacy, but had definitely endorsed secession. This included Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, and also Texas. With the exception of Texas, each of these states had more than 40% of the population in slaves. That being said, despite the geographical size of this territory, the grouping of these states, geographically, still lacked clear unity, leadership, manufacturing strength, and in addition, its control over the lower Mississippi River could become a fatal weak point. Thus, the quasi-united Southern Confederacy had serious strategic shortcomings. There were also some political issues. Many Southern leaders had hung back on secession, this time as in 1850, and would have been dragging their feet still further. But the Fire Eaters saw their moment, and they realized how to take advantage of it. By pushing South Carolina to the fore, they turned the political scene on its end. Now the cooperationists were seen as being laggards, fearful of being picked off one by one under a Republican administration which would gain more power with every succeeding state, they turned and joined the Confederacy. Many leaders would have preferred to make at least a symbolic show of strength and use that to gain concessions in Washington. But again, with every succeeding state, it became less and less plausible as a plan. That said, we should note here that at least a quarter or more of the population of the Deep South very certainly did not want secession, even leaving aside the slaves, whom we will discuss. European immigrants, non-slaveholders, residents in undeveloped areas, and a fair scattering of honest patriots would have resisted 
However, these lacked a clear party or movement to support. Many did not participate very actively in politics. They did not have authority or influence. Throughout most of the South as well, opinions against slavery had become dangerous to express in public. This limited counter-secession organization, given how deeply linked secession and pro-slavery politics had become. For years, slaveholders had targeted and destroyed, sometimes with personal violence or sometimes by politically undermining, any opposition to their power. And yet, even now, secessionists feared that such a movement might emerge, and it was not impossible to imagine. In Texas, for example, Governor Sam Houston resisted splitting off from the Union and then tried to take Texas in an independent direction when that became impossible. Probably he had the intention of rejoining the Union in the future once the situation died down. Secessionists instead evicted him from office in a very legally questionable move. However, believing the game was up, he rejected an offer of military aid from Washington to try and stay in power. He left politics for his few remaining years, but he left with a warning. After the sacrifice of countless millions of treasure and hundreds of thousands of lives, you may win Southern independence if God be not against you, but I doubt it. I tell you, while I believe with you in the doctrine of states' rights, the North is determined to preserve this union. They are not fiery, impulsive people as you are, for they live in colder climates. But when they begin to move in a given direction, they move with the steady momentum and perseverance of a mighty avalanche, and what I fear is, they will overwhelm the South. Of course, in the end, that proved a frighteningly accurate assessment. In the end, hardline secessionists didn't necessarily need a majority to take over a state, apart from South Carolina. Given a sizable minority, it proved surprisingly easy in this moment to demand a convention and then pull in otherwise moderate representatives. There was no political alternative anymore. In this, secessionism was aided greatly by some of the features of the contemporary American political landscape, both permanent and temporary. In a permanent sense, the federal nature of the Union meant that each state already had the governing apparatus necessary to function. Americans quite often identified themselves primarily as citizens of a given state or territory even when they moved, and these were and are considered largely sovereign within their own borders. On a local level, state taxes were more significant and important compared to the small federal government, and therefore the states could passively resist a great deal of pressure. Likewise then, and also now, state legislatures held the necessary power to raise militias. This had been a long-standing feature of American life, and to this day every adult male and sometimes women, depending on the state law, are considered part of the militia in the widest legal sense. The historical performance of American militiamen in battle varied greatly, with an eclectic array of glories and humiliations, precisely because their training, equipment, motivation, and discipline varied greatly from one state and from unit to unit. The militia fought wars and was a necessity on the frontier, but they also lost a great many battles that could have been victories with more disciplined regulars. By 1860, however, most state militias were no longer viewed as a military necessity. In nearly every state, no real threat existed at all. Therefore, militias had a tendency to run down unless they were socially important. In the South, and in many other corners of the United States, this tended to mean that militiamen who kept up organization and training 
were relatively well off, though not military professionals, and possessed a certain amount of social standing or wealth. Not surprisingly, this meant that Southern militias were often deeply pro-secession and formed a ready-made core to the eventual Confederate military. Now, this did cause some quirks within the later Southern military, which we will discuss, but this was clearly an advantage for the secessionist movement right now. Indeed, some of these militias were neck-deep in secret seditionist societies, such as the Knights of the Golden Circle. These groups definitely did not help stabilize the peace of the nation. Now, we also need to look at one temporary feature, and that was a very specific weakness of the federal government in this exact point in time. Today, the presidency changes hands in January. In the 19th century, that event occurred in early March, creating an extended lame duck period for James Buchanan. With Congress out of session for part of that time, there was essentially no leadership available. As it happened, what was available was about as awful as could be imagined. James Buchanan, after a career spent encouraging Southern Democrats to go all in on slavery, promoting the wildest of fears in his attempts to sway the most recent election, who wrecked the moderate wing of the Democrats, and finally cheered on its most radical candidate, Breckinridge. Well, that James Buchanan managed to have one final act on the national stage. In this, he surprised almost everyone, not the least of which were the Southern Democrats he so favored. Buchanan came out publicly, against secession. Given his enthusiasm for Southern causes, this actually surprised many people in and outside his party. Unfortunately, it was too little too late. Buchanan's actions and decisions meant little in the context of secession. As was usually the case with Buchanan, what he did did very little good, and he spent most of his time doing nothing. He seemed to feel very little urgency about the issue of the entire Gulf Coast region acting in rebellion, and he took no great steps to coordinate with Abraham Lincoln, or to solidify the military situation. The only real actions he took relating to the crisis at all was to forbid transferring any more guns or rifles to the South, after a Secretary of War, John B. Floyd, attempted to do so in a transparent ploy to curry favor with the nascent Confederacy. Floyd also may have actively worked to hinder and distract the Army Command, or at least that was General Grant's opinion after the war. Floyd only even resigned after one last throw of the dice, whereupon Buchanan finally saw the necessity, took steps, and demanded he get out. And that last throw was when Floyd, more or less in full-on high treason mode, tried to get Buchanan to order Major Robert Anderson to evacuate Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. Secretary of War Floyd tried to push Major Anderson back into a more vulnerable fortification. Buchanan refused to countenance this nonsense at least, and Floyd left office, southward. He would soon find a new career commanding troops over the Confederacy. Now, we'll soon return to the subject of Fort Sumter, but next time, we'll explore the topic of Southern secession and how Jefferson C. Davis, formerly a radical secessionist who had since mellowed somewhat into a potential statesman, took up the mantle of arch-rebel and perhaps became the single most hated man in our national history. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining, and I hope you'll come back next time.